So we have no, uh, according to the ACNA, to which we belong, we cannot innovate. Uh, we are obliged, even in the Reformation that is presently occurring, to return to the faith once delivered to the saints. That's the principle of the English Reformation. You remember the principle, the definition I gave? This, by the way, if you wouldn't mind typing up and putting on there if we don't have it. Um, the principle of the English Reformation is, and he'll get it up, up there, is to return the Catholic Church in the realm of England and, and those subsequently in communion with her to the faith and order of the undivided church under the authority and primacy of Holy Scripture as God's word. That's the principle of the English Reformation. And it's that principle that I believe has to drive us in this, our movement right now. Otherwise, this is just going to be an opportunity for the more Catholic-minded people to create the church in their image and the more evangelicals to create it in their image and the more charismatics to create it in their image and the liberals to create it in their image. And we'll all have a church in our image. See, I think, I think one of the, the greatest problems is that in orthodox, small orthodox movements, is that they, they, they create a Reformation movement because people are trying to create the king, the, the groom, Jesus, in their image, right? They don't want to be molded into God's image by God. They want to mold and reshape Jesus into an image they're comfortable with. Everyone with me? But the temptation comes when they say, well, then we, we recognize that you've left us, and now we're in this Reformation over here. The temptation isn't to recreate the groom in your image. That's what those terrible Episcopalians are doing, right? But what is the temptation for us? To mold the bride into our image. You see? And that happens a lot. Um, Bishop Harvey and I joke that usually one of the greatest prob the greatest gift and the greatest problem of every movement is its founders. Because in the beginning, they're the ones that are faithful and take the stand and lead us through the Red Sea. But later on, egos start to get in the way, <laughs> right? And it usually isn't until a few generations later that things really finally get solidified, you know? Also, yeah. the yeah. And some of the knee-jerk reaction. But people move from trying to shape the groom into their image to trying to shape the bride. From shaping Jesus in their, to their image to shaping the church in their image. Okay. So now moving on. Technically, it is incorrect to refer to Anglicanism as a denomination. Now this is one of those Michael McKinnon fights that are going nowhere. Like my don't celebrate Christmas before the 24th of December, okay? Everyone calls it a denomination. I've heard bishops in the ACNA call it a denomination. Drives me absolutely nuts, and I'll tell you why. Technically, it's incorrect to refer to Anglicanism as a denomination. We are not a denomination per se, though the term is often applied to us. We are a worldwide communion and a fellowship of the historic church. 
So we're not a denomination. We are a communion or a fellowship, or for lack of better word, a branch of the historic church. And I'll, I'll expand upon this a little bit more. But a wonderful example was when Christine and I were dating, and she visited my church for the first time. And at the end, remember now, she worked for the government and the CIA at the time, so she, we were having lunch, and she said, your church is not very... Um, not very uh, American. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she says, well, you're bowing to one another, you're, you're kneeling, you're dressed up in funny stuff, and it's very, you know, it just doesn't... And I said, you have to remember that our culture as a church is global, not American. And not only global, but is a culture that's been formed throughout time. And not only going back to early Christianity, but actually going back to some things in Judaism. And so all of these things play into the culture of Anglicanism in North America. And it's because we're not a Protest- an American Protestant denomination. We are a worldwide communion. So our culture isn't denominational. Okay. Another example would be in 2000, no, what was it? 2003? Maybe, whenever it was, and I was on the floor of General Convention. I was a, a clergy delegate for our diocese, my then diocese of Quincy. And I was right next to, um, uh, I forget where they were from, but a very liberal diocese. Not one of the famous liberal dioceses. It wasn't like Massachusetts or something. But a pretty, or Newark, but it was a pretty liberal diocese. And the priest and I got along because we were all exchanging candies and everything, you know. He, you know, yeah, I had Reese's, and he's like, "Well, what do I have to give you for one of your Reese's?" I'm like, "You're first born," you know. But anyway, we were, you know, we were figuring out. And anyway, when when the vote came down on Gene Robinson, we had decided that what we would do is that we, if it went that he was approved that we would stand and we would walk off the floor of general convention. Okay. And so the vote came through. He was passed. We were doing this new thing, this innovative thing. Okay. By the way, my issue wasn't that he identified himself as a homosexual. What do you think my issue with Gene Robinson is? Right, wasn't repentant. If he said, hey, I struggle with homosexuality. Hey, I, st- I struggle with stuff too, buddy. Yours might be in the papers. I'm hoping to keep mine out. <laughs> but, but you know what? I'm a sinner too. But I'll tell you, I'm, I'm sorry, and I'm trying my best by God's grace. You know what I mean? That's my, my issue, okay? That he was saying that I don't care what the scriptures say, it's okay. All right? Um, so we got up to leave, and he said, Michael, please don't, don't do this. Don't do this. Um, and, and I said something to the priest like, Look, you know, we, we don't have the authority to act. This is a unilateral act, you know. The, the, the church would need to address this, you know. And he looked at me with sincerity and said, What do you mean? The church just did address it. And I realized at that point that two different understandings of church... Okay, 
I saw myself as a Catholic who is in the particular fellowship of the Anglican Communion who's living out his life in the Episcopal Church in the United States. Okay? The church is not general convention. He saw himself as belonging to an American Protestant denomination. What's the highest authority of any denomination? It's, right, it's, it's general synod or convention is the highest authority that, that it is. And he saw himself as belonging to an American Protestant denomination, so he didn't understand. I mean, he, in sincerity, was like, but Michael, if you, you, you're the, one of those Catholic-minded guys, you're always subserving it to the church. Well, the church has just decided, so acquiesce, man. And I'm like, general convention isn't the church. It doesn't have that kind of authority. Um, and so, but it really is two different ecclesiologies. One time I was in the office of Bishop um, Bud Cedarholm, who I really like personally. I, I really do like him. But we both described where I saw us as, as Catholics and as in a particular fellowship, the Anglican Communion. And the Episcopal Church was the Anglican Communion in the United States. So we had autonomy, but we could not exercise our autonomy at the expense of the communion. Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? Just like I have certain autonomy in my marriage. It's very little, to be honest, but I, I, I have some autonomy, okay? Um, but I cannot exercise autonomy at the expense of my union with Christine. Does that make sense? So, for example, uh, if I tell Christine I'm going to go to Subway today for lunch, am I free to order a turkey or a chicken sub? Yep, maybe. Yes. Am I free to have purchased that Mustang without Christine's knowledge and to bring it home and say, look at the car we just bought, honey? No. no. So I have autonomy, but I cannot exercise my autonomy at the expense of the covenant. I saw that we are first Catholic. As Anglicans, we are a fellowship of the Catholic Church. We have autonomy, but not at the expense of the greater Catholic Church. That's why we can't innovate. And the Episcopal Church has autonomy, but not at the expense of the Anglican Communion. Bishop Bud Cedarholm, and actually this was a very, uh, what do you call it, good conversation, very um, cordial and amicable uh, conversation. He said, ah, yeah, where I see us as the Episcopal Church, and we have a shared heritage with many other national and regional churches throughout the world known as the Anglican Communion. He saw the church as many local churches coming together to form a communion. I saw us as a communion locally manifested in many national and regional churches. Okay? There are some marriages that see themselves as two individuals in a covenant. That's not a healthy marriage. Okay? There are other marriages that, oh, we're all one, we've got to buy the same clothes. That's not healthy either. There has to be some autonomy. Some Remember, in the Godhead, they are one, first and foremost, right? But each person is distinct, okay? And so, really, Bishop Cedarholm and I had two different understandings of the church. His is a Protestant ecclesiology. Mine is a Catholic ecclesiology. In a Catholic ecclesiology, 
the smaller has autonomy, but not at the expense of the larger. Okay, is everyone with me so far? I don't think he ever really under you know ever heard that before. Maybe he had. What percentage of people walked out? I mean, was it a very small group? Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And there was many that agreed with us, but who didn't walk out. Um, and of course, the, you know, the longer you stay, there are those who you know. I don't care that I'm on the SS Titanic. I'm going to stay and fight. You know. The thing is, is that, and it's hard to know exactly where this line is in the sand, but at some point, if you don't separate yourself from the cancer, you yourself will contract cancer. But where did, where's that cutoff line is very difficult. I remember speaking at an Episcopal church once, and they said, well, Father Michael, how do you know where to draw the line in the sand? How do you know when to say, I mean, technically, we would say that those who remained in the Episcopal church separated them from us, but to make the language easier, how do you know when to separate? Because you don't want to separate over everything. That goes back to what you were saying before about separating from a bishop. You should never take that lightly, right? You better be darn sure you can answer for it before God, right? Um, so how do you know when? And I was at this Episcopal church, and they said, because some would say that it's over the abortion issue. Some said that it was over the ordination of women as priests and bishops, some said it was when we allowed divorce and remarriage under any circumstances. See, once we started innovating, it, it was like a domino effect. Some say it was with this. Some say it was with the 79 prayer book. Some say it was with this. Some, so, Father Michael, okay, we hear you saying that it's time. But how do you know that it's time? Because everyone has a different line in the sand. And I said to them, um, I don't know where the line of the sand is. But I know that if you are in communion with a church that can no longer affirm the lordship of Jesus Christ, the line in the sand is somewhere behind you. And that for me is why it's clear cut of why I couldn't remain in good conscience in the Episcopal Church. Because they cannot affirm the lordship of, of, of Jesus Christ. So technically, it is incorrect to refer to Anglicanism as a denomination. We are not a denomination per se, though the term is often applied to us. We are a worldwide communion and a fellowship of the historic Catholic Church. A denomination may be defined by specific characteristics. A human writer, a human founder rather, a human founder whose writings or teachings are given great weight in theological matters. There's a reason Lutherans are called Lutherans. Even though they say that they are scripture alone, the writings of Luther carry really the weight of holy tradition for them. Okay? Uh, so it's a human founder whose writings in particular, we as Anglicans have no particular founder. Okay? Because we never claim to be a new church. Okay? A denomination, following characteristics, a human founder whose writings or teachings are given great right, right, uh, weight in theological matters. Who's our founder? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ and the apostles. Sadly, if Anglicans had to choose between two bumper stickers, and one said, and don't put them on my car, and one said, my church was founded in 33 A.D., 
Or the other one said, my church was founded by Henry VIII. Which one do you think they would choose? Sadly, the latter one. The first one, right. And you know who does do that? The Orthodox Church. I've seen that bumper sticker. The Orthodox Church, founded 33 AD. And whenever I'm behind that, I say, you know, right on, man, or woman. You got it. <laughs> you got it. Um, so our founder is Jesus Christ. So a human founder whose writings or teachings are, teachings are given great weight in, in uh, theological matters. A national or regional identity with a local ecclesiology, that is a local understanding of the church, like the priest that was next to me at general convention. The church did just decide, okay? He had a national or regional identity for the church, okay? Where mine was not only global, but throughout time. Yeah, a local understanding of church. Okay? So they have a national or regional identity and a local ecclesiology. Um, a national or regional convention, a decision-making body, which serves as the denomination's highest authority and court of appeal. So if the convention decides... Like in the Southern Baptist Convention, if they decide something, that's it. Because that's how a denomination works. Where for us, even the ecumenical councils are subject to the authority of Scripture. Okay? And these are ecumenical councils. Okay? That's why I used to argue all the time. We're giving general convention an authority that even the ecumenical councils of the whole church never claimed. Okay. So a national or regional convention, a decision-making body, which serves as the denomination's highest authority or court of appeal, and a particular confession of faith unique, particular or peculiar, to some degree, to that body. Like, the Augsburg Confession, the Westminster Confession. Okay? As Anglicans, we don't have the closest thing is probably the 39 articles, but we would say that they are subject to Scripture and the writings of the early church fathers under the authority of Scripture. Okay? Um, and so we don't have anything that says this is the Anglican faith, okay? uh, where Lutherans do, Presbyterians do, and... When you were growing up uh, a Presbyterian, had you heard of the Westminster Confession? Okay. All right. All right. Um, Anglicanism does not fit this description of a denomination precisely because it's not a denomination. It is a fellowship of the undivided Catholic Church. Anglicanism claims no human founder apart from our Lord Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, apart from sin and the holy apostles. And then, in all caps, Henry VIII is not the founder of our church, and there's four exclamation points. Do you know why I put four? Because it's one more than three. Okay. <laughs> Good 
Anglicanism does not give theological weight to any one theologian. So we don't say as Luther says, right? Or for us, as Hooker says, or as John Jewell says. What we would say is, look, we want to look at Richard Hooker and John Jewell and Lancelot Andrews and Thomas Ken, and we want to look at what they wrote in relation to the early church fathers as grounded in Scripture. We don't point to one person and say, well, but that's what Sandra said. So therefore, that's what we're going to do. Well, that's how Phil lives, but besides Phil. <laughs> that's, how, that's how Hillary lives too, right? <laughs> I hope she's not listening to this. We all know she has autonomy. <laughs> um, Anglicanism does not give theological weight to any one theologian, but to the writings of the English reformers and their successors as they relate to the writings of the early church fathers and most especially to the Holy Scriptures as God's Word. Do you see the difference between us and a denomination? How many people outside of this room in our own church family do you think believe? What percentage of our people who aren't here in this room right now probably think we're a denomination? 99%. 99% probably. Right? Because they, And I hear bishops in the ACNA refer to us as a denomination. As a denomination. And, and I think it's something that they probably have just given into but I think words matter. It puts an identity on us. Just like what we were saying by, by kind of acquiescing to Rome as being the Catholic Church, they actually, in a sense, kind of live out the claim that they are the Church. And you're either in, uh, uh, in uh, um, congruence, would that be the word? Congruence with them, or you're against them, but they are the measuring stick. Why? Because they are the Catholic Church, which is why I think our communion should be called the Evangelical Catholic Communion, because that would force people to di distinguish between, um, you would have Evangelical Catholics, who are those Catholics who are under the authority of the Bible, and you would have Roman Catholics, who are those Catholics under the authority of the Pope. Technically, the Orthodox Church, its official name is the Orthodox Catholic Church. But even they have succumbed to not using the term Catholic. And they'll say, oh, in Orthodox Catholic dialogue. To me, it's, it, words matter. Words matter. And labeling ourselves as a denomination forms a mindset in our mind. Uh, Deacon Susie and then uh, uh, Don. Well, we, well, first of all, there is a continuing church that has. <laughs> but, but that's another reason. Uh, that could be another name. However, Anglican, uh, um, in many people's minds, um, uh, equals uh, white Anglo-Saxon. And because it's a global communion, three-fourths of which is African, Asian, Latino, uh, many people say that the word is now passe, and it's time to simply call us what we are. We're Bible Catholics, so the Evangelical Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, oh, Don. No, I just thought that denomination to me is more restrictive yeah. in definition, whereas communion is woven. Yeah, right, exactly. 
often when I'm describing, when people ask me about the Episcopal Church, I'll say, well, you know, Anglicans belong to a worldwide family. And the Episcopal Church, um, though part of that family to a greater or lesser degree, is moving in a unilateral decision. And we wanted to remain with the global family. And people can say, oh, okay, they can get their mind around that, you, you know? But that's only true of the Episcopal Church in the United States, right? Or is it true for the Episcopal Church worldwide? The Episcopal Church worldwide. As in, like, let's say, an Episcopal Church in South Africa. Well, you, well, what are you asking about it? Is the liberal unilateral movement, it, it's, it's gaining speed. Um, and I'll say it's the same reason. At a certain point, you try to save the limb, right? If you have gangrene, you try to save the limb. But at some point, if it gets to a certain point and you don't cut the limb off, what's going to happen? The whole body is going to become infected, right? And I do believe that's what's, what's happening. And, um, but... You're still talking eighty percent versus versus twenty percent, but but yeah, this is a it's it's a problem that's getting larger. But isn't that why several churches decided to align themselves with bishops in Africa? Yes, yes, absolutely. So, yeah. So that would imply then that it is just the Episcopal Church in the United States. Well, and, 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 and uh, yeah, yeah, the, the first world, really. The first world, really. Yeah, New Zealand and, and, and Australia. The, um, that's why there's something, if you listen carefully to the prayers of the people that we say most weeks, we pray um, for the Holy Catholic Church throughout the world, for the Anglican Communion, and then we play, pray for something called the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans. And those, that's a group of Orthodox Anglicans throughout the world. It's the 80%. And uh, that's the group that belongs to that. We belong to that. So if it is the 80% that, that don't follow this... No, 80% that does. Oh, that does. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're the minority in North America. We're the vast majority in the world. Right, but that's what I'm saying. If the vast majority is not going along with this movement, the liberal movement within the church, mm-hmm. then why is that church identified mm-hmm. as a liberal church? Uh, because you, you mean here in the United States? No, I mean, with, well, I guess, yeah, I guess so. Because, because that's what people know. People only know what they see, you know? And so they, they, they don't think of, uh, of that. I mean, most people don't realize that we so belong to a... the minority is actually winning this war. In our culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in our culture here in the U.S., in Canada, yes. In We're in the minority America, report. Here. But globally, they are not. Shouldn't we be praying for Episcopalianism? Oh, absolutely. So why, why don't we pray that? Well, I mean, we should also pray for method. I mean, so we... But, Well, we pray to the we pray for those that we belong, but we do pray for all Christians, so they are lumped in in that. But we pray for it's it's also a teaching tool. We pray for the Holy Catholic Church throughout the world. We pray for the Anglican Communion, and then we pray for our diocese, the Archdeaconry, our parish, and then we name the missions. So it's kind of a teaching tool of ecclesiology, so to speak. 
And by the way, we pray in a very specific way. We don't pray from the small up. We pray from the, the bigger down, specifically. Um, okay. Um, all right. So the Holy Scriptures hold a place of primacy within the Anglican tradition. Our identity as Anglicans transcend national borders and even time itself, for it understands itself as part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church existing throughout time in every age and in every place. From the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. Okay? Um, Yeah, from Pentecost to the second advent of our Lord in heaven and on earth. Okay. The exact date of the the exact date the gospel came to the shores of England is unknown. Bob, get out. <laughs> I know. God bless. The exact date the gospel came to the shores of England is unknown. According to an ancient legend accepted by the early church, Joseph of Arimathea, see Mark fifteen, forty two to forty six traveled to the Isles of Ancient Britain, as it was then known, and proclaiming the gospel, evangelized the pagan peoples there. According to this legend, Joseph was a trader in tin, whose trade route brought him to this fair but far-off land where he first proclaimed the gospel in Glastonbury, England, not Connecticut. Okay. In Glastonbury. Other early sources also include Simon the Apostle, Simon the Zealot, as among those who first evangelized England. Many scholars today question the historicity of these legends and believe that it's more likely that Roman soldiers who had been converted to Christianity, though secretly due to Christian persecution, were actually among the first to bring the gospel to this region. Despite these differences in opinion and lack of precise historical data, we know that the church, the church, the Catholic Church, was present in England and the surrounding region very early in Christian history. In fact, most historians will say that the Catholic Church has spread from Jerusalem through the known world and to England and the surrounding region, what we would call the Celtic lands, by sometime in within the apostolic age. By the way, the, the legend, which certainly is unfounded, is even further, is that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a trader in tin, was, um, was also a relative of Jesus by adoption. He was a relative of his foster father, Joseph, and when Joseph died, shortly after Jesus being 12, um, Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus with him on his trade route. Okay? This was a story spawned by some early Christians. And that he actually visited England shortly after the age of 12. Okay? Thus the hymn in the Church of England called Jerusalem did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's hills of green. 
It's referring to Jesus being a young boy and coming to England. I then take the legend even further and say, at which time he wrote the 1549 Book of Common Prayer and hid it on, and put it on gold tablets, putting it under a rock. And spoke King James English. <laughs> what else? <laughs> right. Okay. St. Um, uh, Alban first known martyr of Britain, the proto-martyr, the first martyr, was martyred in 203 AD. Quote, St. Alban was a pagan living uh, at a town I cannot pronounce, now, now the town of St. Albans. <laughs> That's easier. When a persecution of Christians broke out and a certain cleric flying for his life, that was the quote, flying for his life, took refuge in Alban's house. Alban sheltered the priest, and after some days, moved by his example, himself received baptism. So a priest was running for his life, took shelter in Alban's house, and through his example, converted Alban to Christianity, and Alban was baptized. 203. Oh, That's all right. Later on, when the governor's emissaries came to search the house, Alban disguised himself in the cloak of his guest and gave himself up in his place in order to protect the priest. He was dragged before the judge, scourged, and when he would not deny his faith, condemned to death. There is also evidence that three British bishops attended the Council of Arles, A-R-L-E-S, Arles, Arles, anyone? What? Arles. It's, in the, it's near Flynn. Arles, Flynn, sorry. That's Earl, but, well, it was, it was, it was a stretch. <laughs> All right, there's also evidence that three British bishops attended the Council of Arles in 314 A.D., a council called to put down the Donatist heresy. Most historians do acknowledge that it's highly likely that the gospel reached the shores of England as early as the apostolic age itself. The Donatist heresy was a heresy that one had to be pure in order for sacraments to be valid. Do I got that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sacraments to be valid. So, for example, if tonight uh, I go off with a woman who's not Christine and don't repent, and tomorrow morning I come in and I preside at the Mass they would claim, the Donatists would claim that the sacrament is invalid. Don't they have to be donuts at the Mass? That, that's, the, that's the second half of the, yes. I, I used to joke about that, that the Donatists were those who emphasized the, uh, the donut at coffee hour over receiving the sacrament itself. But it was a Puritist movement. You had to be pure for something, and in, in that case, no one is legitimately anything, because... I, I, I have never met a human being who's pure, but that was the idea. 
The Catholic Church in this land, what we now call England and the surrounding region, the Celtic lands, what we know as Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and England, okay? The Catholic Church in this land eventually became torn between two competing centers of ecclesiastical influence. That is, the church in this land was torn between two, what does ecclesiastical centers mean? Church centers, okay? I'm going to sit down, my back's starting to hurt. Um, Iona, represented by the more ancient Christian tradition of that land, known as Celtic Christianity. Iona is an island uh, in the highlands of Scotland, off the coast of the highlands of Scotland, uh, where there was a, a monastery, and it was really the center of, of Celtic Christianity, which was a, a form of uh, the ancient Catholic Church in that land. Okay. Um, while Canterbury, so Iona represented the more Celtic influence, while Canterbury represented the church in Rome and its growing influence and enlarging jurisdiction over Western Europe. Okay, so by the time Canterbury was established in the 7th century, Rome's jurisdiction over Europe was beginning to grow. Okay. The ancient Celtic Church, identified here with Iona, was part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church throughout the world. So it wasn't a separate church, it was the local manifestation of the Catholic Church. Though distinct in many ways, for example, the influence of monasticism was, was, uh, had much more of an influence there. An example would be that in the rest of uh, Catholic Christianity, they followed the diocesan model. Why? Because evangelism uh, was done by following the, the model of city-states. Okay, And so a bishop would be set up in a city, and then they would minister to the surrounding region. Well, what was the problem with, with putting a bishop in a city in the Celtic lands? They didn't have cities. They didn't have road systems. They didn't, okay? There was farmland, right? Uh, and so there was monasteries. So there was more of a monastic model um, in, in the Celtic lands. So distinct, though distinct in many ways, for example, influence of monasticism, the missionary bishop, like our patron here, St. Chad, who was a missionary bishop. So rather than being in a diocese, he's sent out the missionary bishop, the lack of diocesan structure, which I just spoke of, the local form of liturgy, though essentially the same as the liturgy everywhere in, in the Catholic Church, it also was distinct, the ancient Celtic liturgy, just as the liturgy was distinct in Gaul and in Prussia and in Constantinople and in Rome. Okay, The date of Easter, which was different than the rest of Western Christianity, its mystical and incarnational theology, etc., because the West tended to be more legalistic, and this realm tended to be more mystical uh, and incarnational in its theology. So despite these distinctive characteristics, the Celtic Church was fully united with the Catholic Church throughout the world. It adhered, guess what, to the one canon of Scripture, the one faith summarized in the creeds of the Church, the one sacramental life, and the one apostolic ministry of the whole Church. Simply put, the Celtic Church was the Catholic Church 
in that land. Is everyone with me? Great Christian saints belong to its history. Joseph of Arimathea, Alban of Britain, George of England, Patrick of Ireland. Everyone thinks he was a good Roman Catholic. He wasn't. No, he was a Brit. Yeah, he, I mean, yeah, he, he, he was a Brit. He was a Catholic, but not a Roman Catholic. And if anything, he was part of that particular that's more that we trace our heritage to. Bridget of Ireland, David of Wales, Columba of Iona, the founder of Iona, who was a McKinnon, by the way, Aidan of Lindensfarne, Hilda of Whitby, Chad of Litchfield, that's our patron, and many others. However, the Celtic Church, though in full communion with the Church in Rome, indeed with all of, the, all of Catholic Christianity, was not under the authority or jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome, whose influence was growing on the continent. So the Church was the Catholic Church in that realm. It was in full communion with the Catholic Church everywhere, but it wasn't under the authority. Everyone has this idea that there was like, even, though, even if they don't like the Roman Catholic Church, there was Jesus, then there was the Roman Catholic Church, then the Orthodox broke away from the Church in 1054, and then the Protestants broke away from the Church in the Protestant Reformation, and then finally Henry started his own church when he broke. And historically, it's just not true. Historically. I could become a Muslim. This still is historically wouldn't be true. Okay. Um, so although it was part of the Catholic Church throughout the world, it was not under the authority or jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome. These two traditions, though one in matters of faith, represented two competing centers of influence. In the early part of the 7th century, Pope Gregory the Great sent a monk named Augustine to England to proclaim the gospel and to convert the pagan Angles there. Augustine would later become the first Archbishop of Canterbury, which subsequently became a center for both evangelism and practice in the South. Now, the Pope didn't realize that there was already the Catholic Church there. Okay, so he sent um, Augustine there to evangelize. And he was greeted by whom? That counts. Yeah, Christians. Okay. Um, but he sent, uh, set up Canterbury. What's interesting is he actually, we have a letter in history. He writes to the Pope and says, uh, uh, Gregory, yeah, uh, the church is pretty small here because the pagans are pretty strong, but it does actually exist here. And Gregory actually writes to him and says, well, that's okay, just share the gospel and allow them to have freedom in, in all matters. He didn't try to claim jurisdiction over them, okay? It wasn't until later. So for the first seven and a half centuries, the Catholic Church in that realm was not under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome. Um, in 664 AD, a special synod was called in Whitby to settle matters that were dividing the Christian people of ancient Britain. What year 664. 664. Christianity in Britain was torn between these two competing Christian traditions, Celtic and Roman. So it was the same faith, but different approaches. 
another big difference was how they wore the tonsure. Okay, I follow the full model. Okay. Um, Christianity in Britain was torn between these two competing Christian traditions, Celtic and Roman. The Synod of Whitby was called to settle the growing dispute between the North, influenced by the older Celtic tradition, now centered in Iona, and the South, influenced by the newer Roman tradition, now centered in Canterbury. Iona and Can- I wrote this. I got a kick out of it, though. Iona and Canterbury faced off in, the, in competing for the soul of the church in Britain. <laughs> Whitby would prove to be a turning point in the ecclesiastical history of England, bringing the Celtic Church, Celtic church more in line with the rest of Western Europe over which the authority of the Bishop of Rome was daily enhancing. So you can see how Rome grew its jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in this realm. But it wasn't until the middle of the 7th century. Okay. Um, Canterbury would become the new soul center, not soul center, S-O-L-E, the soul center, of Christianity in Britain. However, the growing authority and jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome over the Catholic Church in Britain would take several centuries to solidify. It really, if you ever watch the uh, incredible movie with uh, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole called Beckett, uh, if you ever watch Beckett, it was the dispute between Henry II and Beckett that really helped the Pope to solidify his jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in that realm because Henry, I mean, because Becket appealed to Rome to, for protection. Okay? If anyone wants to see it, the movie is actually available on YouTube. Yeah, and, and it's huh. awesome. It is awesome. Awesome movie. It's on YouTube. The Celtic tradition had left its mark on that land, however. At the time of the English Reformation, which is to be distinguished somewhat from the Continental Reformation, commonly called the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church in England would once again seek to be free from the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome. Not free from the Catholic Church, free from the claim of the Pope to have jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in that realm. Well, that was the decision, is that they would follow the custom of Canterbury over Iona. The real problem was that you had two kingdoms that were uniting, and they were following a different date for Easter, and so half the kingdom would be celebrating Easter when the other half of the kingdom was still in Lent. So the prince was eating ham, and his princess was, you know, in ashes and sackcloth. And so the idea was, look, we need to work out these different traditions because even though they're secondary matters, it's impacting our kingdom here. And so they decided that it made more sense to follow, to get in line with the rest of Western Europe. And of course, the Pope's authority was growing over Western Europe, 
thus the increase of the Pope's authority over the Catholic Church in that realm. Okay. If you read the story of St. Chad, our, our patron saint, which at any time you can grab this book here called Lesser Feasts and Fast, look up March 2nd, which is his feast day, or March 3rd, I forget which, March 2nd or 3rd, and just read it. He was a Celtic bishop who was right in this time. And so once they decided on Canterbury, um, Canterbury then said, we don't recognize you as a bishop because you weren't validly ordained. Well, it's absurd. He was validly ordained, but he wasn't, according to them, licitly ordained because they weren't fo- he didn't follow the, uh, the Canterbury tradition. To which Alban said, when he said, so therefore you're dismissed of your Episcopal duties, Episcopal meaning bishop, your bishop duties, Alban, I mean, um, Chad is who I've been trying to say. Have I been saying Alban? Yeah. Chad, March 2nd or 3rd, our patron, back on the wall back there, okay, in the icon. Chad, what is it? March 2nd. March 2nd, thank you, Bob. March 2nd, St. Chad of Litchfield, our patron saint in this church, okay. Um, St. Chad followed the Celtic tradition, was ordained from Iona, okay, um, as a Celtic bishop of the Catholic Church. And when um, Canterbury took over the whole kit and caboodle, that archbishop said, you're dismissed because you weren't, uh, you weren't done right. Okay? To which Chad responded, that's okay. I never saw myself as worthy of Episcopal orders anyway. To which the archbishop of Canterbury was so moved by his humility that he um, uh, conditionally ordained him again as bishop, and he became bishop of Lichfield. Okay. Um, all right. Um, uh, all right. The, all right. So the Celtic tradition had left its mark on that land at the time of the English Reformation, which is to be distinguished from the Continental Reformation or the Protestant Reformation the Catholic Church in England would once again seek to be free from the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome. In fact, even Rome didn't excommunicate the Catholic Church in that realm right away. When, when Henry said the Pope doesn't have full jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in this realm, all right, the Pope didn't say, well, I excommunicate the, 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 you know, the Church of England. He didn't. It wasn't until several decades later during Elizabeth's reign that the Pope said, you are out. We never said that he, we've never declared ourselves out of communion with the Roman Catholic, with the Bishop of Rome, let's say it that way. They've declared themselves out of communion with us, but we've never declared ourselves out of communion with any part of the Catholic Church, Okay. Um, but what's different is that we don't claim to be the whole Catholic Church, okay? but a fellowship of it. Okay? Due to unfortunate political influences surrounding the marriage of Henry VIII, that's my nice little way of saying a, a real mess, okay? due to unfortunate political, <laughs> political influences surrounding the marriage of Henry VIII and a growing holy desire among many Christians to see the church in England purged from the theological impurities that had infected 
the Western Church, the church in England sought reform. That's why I said Henry never, the English Reformation probably never would have happened without Henry, but Henry never could have pulled off the English Reformation if the people weren't hungry for it, for reform. The church, meaning the Catholic Church, the church in the realm of England declared herself to be free from the authority and abusive practices of the Bishop of Rome, though it never declared itself out of communion with the Bishop of Rome. The church in that land would retain the essentials of Catholic Christianity. Thus, Henry VIII did not found a new church while reforming the church. The post-Reformation Church of England retained the same scriptures, faith, creeds, sacraments, and orders of ministry, that of bishop, priest, and deacon, as that of the undivided Catholic Church to which she belonged. Okay, um, okay we only have 20,000 more pages. Um, but I'll, I'll, any, any questions before we move, move on? I actually just want to sit down for a minute, so I'm hoping there's at least one. No, that's good. I mean, it's really interesting what, what you're saying. Yeah. But, but I keep going back to uh, these guys were killing each other over this. Oh, yeah. I mean, Tyndale, all Tyndale did was write, uh, translate the Bible, and he was burned at the stake. Yeah. Well, oh, a lot of horrible things happened, yeah. yeah. But throughout history, I mean... I mean, it's true in all the ecumenical councils and even how the scripture, I mean, God always uses brokenness and horrible historic circumstances to bring about goodness in his church. Just as in my life, I'm a broken, fallen, sinful person, but because I love God, he's always working for good in my life because I love him. So... The church is fallen and broken and sinful in many ways. Though it's divine, it's also in human hands. And yet because the church loves the Lord, he's always making lemonade. I know, like, always. Henry executed Thomas Moore. Yeah, more or less, yeah. <laughs> Was that because, because Thomas Moore would not support his separating from the Bishop of Rome? Yeah, well, separating from the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome, yes, Thomas More remained uh, loyal to the Roman pontiff. But more people died under Mary, thus the name Bloody Mary, who, um, who put the, the Reformed Catholics, the, the Anglicans, to death. So, I mean, no one is innocent in that time period. I mean, it was absolutely horrible. It was very, very bloody. Um, and, um, uh, you know, but this is true if you read the ecumenical councils, too. I mean, if you just read the history of it, I mean, it, it's just, human beings are just, we're a sad lot, man. We, we, we are a sad lot, and yet you can see God making lemonade. I mean, the Holy Incarnation is lemonade, you know? We mess up God's creation, so he comes into it. He comes right into the mess. We give him lemons, he makes lemonade. And, you know, the English Reformation was no, was no different. You know. Anyone else?
Okay. Paulina, go ahead. For how long was I'm so stupid I'm in Mexico? You're not stupid. It's so new for me. For how long was the Church of England under the jurisdiction of the Pope in Rome? Oh, okay. Um, from six from so now again, even after the count, the synod in Whippy, it took several centuries for his jurisdiction to solidify in in Rome, uh, in in England. But if you wanted to make a simple case, it would be from six sixty four to fifteen thirty four. 664 to 1534. In reality, it was probably somewhere in the mid-1200s where he really solidified to the, the late early, if that makes sense, the late early 1500s. So what happened in 1530s? Or the early mid-1500s is probably a better way of saying that. So probably only for a few hundred years did he actually have jurisdiction over the, the Catholic Church in that realm. The English Reformation. Oh, that was the, the actual Yeah, that's the English Reformation. Yeah. Now, now another, another question that I have is in terms of uh, the distinction between Celtic Christianity and, um, for lack of a better term, Roman Catholic Christianity. Yeah, that term wouldn't have been used, but Roman-influenced Christianity, yeah. Yeah. the monasteries. Yes. And, and what's the relationship of an abbot to a bishop? And because there were no great cities, there weren't city-states. Remember, the Roman Empire was built upon the ruins of the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire wasn't uh, um, uh, like the Roman Empire in that it really was a grouping of city-states. When Christianity was evangelizing in the known world, i.e. the Mediterranean world, it really did follow the model of city-states by setting up bishops in the cities who would oversee a diocese, which was the congregation in the city and the surrounding region. A diocese was a, uh, an area overseen by a Roman governor. Um, this model wasn't applicable in the Celtic lands because there were no great cities and there was no road system, which was the other, no elaborate road system. In fact, the diocesan model wouldn't be instituted until Theodore of Tarsus, who was Archbishop of Canterbury in the late 7th century. So even when Iona voted to go, or not voted, but decided to go more with the Canterbury influence over Iona, it still didn't follow a diocesan model for a few decades. It was really Theodore of Tarsus who brought in the diocesan model and began to improve the road system in that land. But prior to that, because there were no great cities and because it was mostly... Um, uh, um, farmland, etc., etc., uh, and because there was not a great road system, uh, evangelism was done through the establishment of monasteries. And really, in the monastery, the highest authority was the abbot or abbess. Under the abbot or abbess was a choir of clergy, those who would sing the offices and so forth. And within the choir, under the abbot or the abbess, was the bishops, the priests, and the deacons. 
Now, and, uh, if an abbot happened to be a bishop, what they called a mitered bishop, he could ordained, ordain. But if he wasn't a bishop, he could still have authority over the bishops because they weren't diocesan bishops, but he couldn't ordain. Uh, if he was not a priest, if he was a brother but not a priest, he couldn't celebrate the Eucharist or hear confessions. Okay? But he had authority. This is, in this, uh, Bob asked the question, you know, let's pretend the whole world was reunited in the church and we brought up the women's ordination. This would be my rebuttal uh, when the evangelicals say, well, we can't have women as priests in a united church either because of headship. I would argue, well, that may be true. We have to look at it. But apparently the ancient Christians in the Celtic lands didn't have an issue with this because Hilda who was a woman, oversaw men and women. And they recognized her authority, including over the bishops. But she would never ordain or hear confessions, which started, by the way, private confession in the Celtic lands. And it's funny that it's Anglicans who poo-poo it. It started in the Celtic lands. But, uh, or celebrate the Eucharist, you know, and that kind of thing. But it was a monastic model where the abbot and not abbess was the highest uh, authority. And the Bishops were really missionary bishops, missionary bishops. And what's very interesting is that the ACNA is following more the model of the ancient Celtic land of a missionary bishop. And that's why our dioceses aren't necessarily geographical or regional. But it's really hard for people to get this through their head because we've had the other model for so long. And that's why, sadly, here in New England, we're considered a bit of an anomaly because we don't belong to the diocese in New England. You know, we belong to the Canadian. How can that be? Because the people have it in their head that a diocese equals a specific region, uh, which is um, uh, a secondary matter. And so we have two types of diocese in, in our province geographical provinces and non-geographical provinces. Uh, and, uh, but that is a very uh, Celtic uh, model. Joan? How did the people in that decentralized, non-diocesan, diocesan um, area, how did they have worship and, and, and Eucharist? Did they go to the monasteries? Monasteries, but the, the, the bishops and the priests would actually go into the villages and, and there would, you know, be in people's homes and, and that kind of thing, or they might build a, a church in that village and they would celebrate the Eucharist. But they traveled on, on, on foot. I'm going to actually read to you, despite the fact that I, I want to get on with it, but this is, is important. I'm going to read... Um, Archdeacon Cross. Will you put that in there? Thank you. Are you leaving? Or are you standing? No, I'm just standing. Okay. So on March March second, we now know um, March second, which is coming up on the closest Sunday after March second, we're going to celebrate the feast of our patron. St. Chad of Litchfield, so you'll hear some of this uh, uh, again. But, but anyway, during Lent, yeah. Um, Chad, Bishop of Litchfield, no T, Lit, Litch, 
field. 672, he died. One of four brothers dedicated to service in the church. Chad was trained by Aiden of Lindensfarne, a community established, by the way, by Iona. As a follower of the Celtic tradition in ritual. His elder brother said, a godly and upright man, had built a monastery at Lastingham where he governed as abbot. So not necessarily because he was bishop, because he was a bishop too, but because he was abbot. At his death, said left the abbacy to Chad. According to the Venerable Bede, who would ever have a title like Venerable? So they, Ven- owned, they owned the monastery? Well, often, no, it belonged to the community, but often it would be handed down in families. Like Iona, for example, the abbots were chosen from the McKinnon clan. And so that's... Choice. Yeah, I, I think so, too. He becomes one. <laughs> Said was first. Said was first, but when he dies, um, it goes to Chad. According to the Venerable Bede, who was a church historian, Chad was, quote, a holy man, modest in his ways, very learned in the scriptures, and zealous in carrying out their teaching. That is the scripture. Okay. Impressed by Chad's qualities, the king appointed him Bishop of York. See how the Catholic Church would be part of the realm of the local kingdom. Okay. The king appointed him. Yeah, not but the Pope. not apostolic succession. Oh, no, no, no. The king didn't ordain him. Oh. The king appointed him. Okay. Chad was ordained, quote, by bishops of the British race who had not been canonically ordained. Okay, that's by the later, more Roman-influenced historian uh, saying that. Bede, the historian, tells us Chad was... Oh, Bede tells us, period. Chad was, Bede also notes, a man who kept the church in truth and purity, humility and temperance. Following apostolic example, he traveled about his diocese on foot. So, I mean, I, one of the things I love about Chad, is not only his humility, but his love for the scriptures and for that which is apostolic makes him, in a, in a sense, really a model for later Anglicanism. You know? The new Archbishop of Canterbury, Theodore, arrived in England four years after Chad's ordination as bishop. Theodore made it clear that Chad's ordination had been irregular, that is, without the authority of the Archbishop of Canterbury, because this is after 664. That would be true anywhere in Europe. The king would appoint his bishops until the Pope started to claim that power as his jurisdiction grew. But the bishop would then be ordained by bishops, not by the king. But he was questioning the ordination of Chad. Only because it wasn't uh, done by the Roman custom of Canterbury. Not because the king appointed him. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, she... Yeah, well, yeah. It is more of a rubber stamp in this day and age, but yeah. See, exactly, yeah. Okay, so Theodore made it clear that Chad's ordination had been irregular, that is, not according to the Roman custom, and Chad most humbly offered to resign from office. Quote, indeed, I never believed myself worthy of it anyway, he said. Theodore, impressed by such humility, reordained him. I think this author is wrong. I think it would have been a conditional ordination, okay? Saying if you're not truly ordained, we're going to ordain you the regular way through this custom. And appointed him Bishop of Mercia in Northumbria. Chad continued his custom of traveling on foot until Theodore ordered him to ride, at least on longer journeys. When Chad hesitated... The archbishop is said at one time to have lifted him bodily onto the horse, determined to compel him to ride when the need arose. Chad administered his new diocese with devout concern. He built a monastery and established a monastic rule at Barrow. In his sea city, now sea cities, that's a diocesan idea, is now being established because it's Theodore of Tarsus who's in Canterbury, bringing now the European diocesan model to this land. Um, in his sea city of Lichfield, where he had an official dwelling, he preferred to read and meditate in a small house he had built nearby. Two and a half years after his second ordination, plague broke out, killing many residents of the diocese, including Chad himself whose death be describes thus, quote, Chad joyfully beheld the day of the Lord, whose coming he had always anxiously awaited. He was mindful to his end of all that the Lord did. End of quote. He was buried at the Cathedral Church of St. Peter in Litchfield, which, by the way, is the church in which Monica and Steve Walker were married. Oh, wow. Isn't that nice? Because that's the church in which Steve and Monica Walker were, were married. We, because we're Holy Trinity, we didn't have a, a patron saint. And uh, so uh, we were talking one time about patron saints. And um, I actually was hoping for a Celtic saint. And Steve Walker, to my surprise, because he doesn't tend to be very Catholic-minded, said, what about St. Chad of Lichfield? I thought, Really? I'm like, that would be awesome in my opinion. Well, me too. Huh. So anyway, I then we started talking about Chad and the vestry agreed that he would be, but I found out why he was so important to Steve. And that is uh, actually the, monast uh, the uh, hometown. That's Monica's hometown. So, okay. Are we ready to go on? Okay, because we have 20 minutes. The apostolic succession. Um, you know, this is going to be tough to get into. I, I think we do another one on this. I'm going to stop here, actually, because this, this would be tough. I'm going to stop there and mark it, and we'll pick up from 
here when we do that one on apostolic succession. So any last, uh, we don't have to go to four o'clock, but uh, any any questions, thoughts?